welcome to episode 18 of Zion's Finest, a Shatterpoint podcast. Uh, hosting today is myself, Scott Nielsen. I'm joined by the brothers JK and Matt. Uh, today we're going to do a little bit different of an episode talking about the hobby aspects of Shatterpoint and what you need to get into it from a, a logistical perspective and some tips and tricks around that area for people that are maybe unfamiliar or looking to up their game. Uh, we always want to point out, come join us on the Slack that we have. Uh, our invite is in the link description. Come and join us and chat about uh, different list building and just strategy. And also in painting channel, you can come show off your painted minis after you start painting in this episode. We also want to ask people to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us a lot get the message out there for all the different Shatterpoint players. So we really appreciate that. And we want to call out some other great content creators in the space. Uh, we want to highlight uh, both Rogue Support, who did a great episode on Mama Talzin that you should all check out, as well as Momentous Struggle did an episode on the Struggle 1 problem that we talked about, and they hit some points that we addressed in our episode, but also some new insights that we thought were really cool and, and, and valuable. So check that out. In addition, please, please fill out our Google Doc form uh, to get game data that is really helping us get insights into the game, figure out what figures are getting run, what are being really successful, as well as just data about the general health of the game. So we really appreciate the people that have been going in, putting their games in there. We're getting lots of great data. We really appreciate it. So uh, diving in to our main topic, the first question we really wanna ask is, what do you need to play Shatterpoint from a hobby perspective? Uh, a lot of people, I know when we got into IA, uh, where all of us kind of came from, you open the box and you just have these minis. And the most assembly I had to do was put the stupid gun inside the ATAT that hurt your fingers and snapped off and broke plastic and you uh, nope. irrevocably broke the gun. Should have been, should have been called PTSD. Still has my fingers hurting. Those things are were brutal. I will say the Legion ATST is not much better. I painted that for a client in the commission, and uh, it was not fun to put together. So that was where we were at. We were really used to just regular putting together. But unless you have played Warhammer or a lot of different miniatures games, you know it might have been a really unpleasant surprise to open up the Shatterpoint box look inside and it's like, well, where's my minis? It's just a bunch of plastic on a sprue. And I'm curious, JK and Matt, I know uh, MCP, when we played that, was kind of your your guys played that with me. Uh, did you have any experience with like hobby or assembly before that? No, the yeah, Crisis Protocol was my first time doing full mini assembly, you know, gluing and, and all of that. So that that is where I jumped in. So that was just a couple years ago. Same as me. I'm trying to think. I, I did random other figure creation. I played 40k with my brother some years ago, uh, but I don't. I think he did all of that for me. If I did some, it was every once in a while. But at any sort of scale, that was certainly my introduction. Makes sense. Technically, my very first introduction to model assembly was uh, Gundams like the, the gunpla kits when I was a kid and I didn't have any of the tools and I just used my fingers to try and like twist them 
and rotate them out. And I broke a lot of the pieces. What I wanted to talk a little about is just talk about what do you need to assemble Shadowpoint quickly, effectively, and without a lot of pain. So first tool, and I think this, this goes to saying, is uh, spruce snips. They are not very expensive. You can buy them at any hobby store that you, you frequent or any game store usually has them right next to the paint. They are 100% essential. Uh, if you try and do it by hand or with a knife or with scissors, God forbid, you're going to have a bad time. So yeah. uh, scissors is... are worse are worse than the knife and your fingers. Scissors are the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing, yeah, one thing I will call out on this is that it is pretty common if you go to your game store or your hobby store, the the, the specialty, you know, branded spruce snips from Army Painter or Citadel or whoever will tend to run you what 20 30 bucks you can often if you are looking to cut costs you can find an identical tool at your local hardware store design you know, not explicitly designed for sprues but it's it is the exact same tool for less than 10 bucks if if you're trying to cut costs that is an option for you that that will get you there absolutely the the general theme of this episode and a lot of these tools is that if you buy the hobby branded version you are going to pay a premium for that convenience and that branding so that's a, a wonderful thing to call out matt even just looking at amazon and online under ten dollars for model sprue cutters so absolutely something you can you can avoid the cost there uh next piece and this one honestly a lot of people have especially if they have children that make balsa wood stuff is an exacto knife so an exacto knife is not necessarily super, super, super essential, but if you have mold lines from the plastic injection process, which all of these professional miniatures are being made through plastic injection. And so, you know, they have a mold, they shoot plastic in it, that plastic dries, hardens, and you've got it there. And there are mold lines in that process. So if you want to scrape those off, you've got your X-Acto knife. It's also really important if you want to do any sort of customization. So absolutely a tool that you should pick up. I don't know about you guys, but I would say the final piece that is absolutely essential is plastic glue. 100%, obviously you got to put the, the miniatures together uh, somehow, uh, unless you are the start collecting from Warhammer that have decided to make everything like, I don't know what the word is, but like fit together just by assembly, uh, you're going to need plastic glue. And for Shatterpoint, 100%. Do you guys use plastic glue or super glue? So I use plastic glue. I started using the like Army Painter branded plastic glue and I have more recently moved on to I think the brand is Tamiya. Yeah, JK's thrown it up in the camera there. I converted JK to it as well. Yep. And what I really like about that particular one is it's very thin and it comes with a brush for application on the inside. One of the problems that you can run into, especially when you're new, is that plastic glue will actually like melt or weld the plastic together, which is mm -hmm. great for sealing up some of those creases and lines between pieces. But if you get too much on there or if you or if you misapply it, then that can actually ruin some of the details on the sculpt. And so I really like this particular Tamiya because it's so thin. Sometimes it takes multiple coats in order to you know, stick everything together, but it, it holds strong and it, it, you, it's much harder to overdo it. Yeah, absolutely. A great point to call out, Matt. 
Uh, I use Citadel plastic glue. I find that it adheres really quickly. Uh, it has a little metal applicator. Uh, you probably can't see it, but essentially looks like a cut up paper clip uh, that will apply uh, very specific uh, points of glue. But Matt is 100% right that with plastic glue, it is absolutely better for assembling miniatures. But if you are not careful, you can ruin your sculpts. Uh, I heard of one guy who was assembling Shuri from Marvel Price Protocol, didn't realize that he had a bit on his hands. He was holding her by the head, pulled it back, and realized he'd melted half of her face off. Uh, it just completely ruined the miniature. Also, if you have to glue after a miniature is already painted and you apply the glue, the glue will strip the paint. There's a, there's a lot of reasons to make sure you're gluing ahead of time and gluing the right thing. I actually used to use the uh, testers, mm -hmm. which is kind of an old, it's an, it's the old school stuff. It's what uh, like my brother used way, way back when, 20, 30 years ago. And it's good. It's just thick. And so I would oftentimes be, I'd actually have a toothpick to try and apply it. And that's one of the big reasons I switched was to get that little, little tiny fine brush makes it so much easier. Cause especially with things like lightsabers and magna yeah. guard arm, uh, arms or those horrifically bad robot arms that are terrible. You want as fine and detailed applicators as possible. Absolutely, 100%. And the nice thing I'll say, the final thing about super glue versus plastic glue, I do have super glue. Sometimes plastic glue, because it has to melt together, doesn't adhere as quickly. And so sometimes if you really need a strong bond or you've got a break that really needs like instant repair to be viable, uh, super glue is, is a better option. I hate it because it gets all over my hands. Plastic glue does not adhere to you because you're not made of plastic unless you live in Beverly Hills. Kenny hey. like that joke. So that is kind of, of my piece. Uh, one, one aspect that we also want to talk about kind of moving past assembly is, okay, you've assembled all of your miniatures. You've got all of your stuff. Uh, what the, where the hell do you put it? And how are you going to transport it to your friendly local game store or to your tournament? And this is an age-old issue. This is an issue in every single miniature game, every war game. Uh, honestly, we go to LVO every year. And we watch, watch people with, with library carts that are meant for books, bringing their entire army of two foot tall miniatures with like, it, it, it's wild, it's wild. So I, I think we just like to talk a little bit about how we personally address those storage solutions, just to kind of give ideas of that. So Matt, what do you like to do for, for your storage solution? I floated around a lot. I for crisis protocol i landed on really liking pluck foam which is basically a, a foam block that has squares in it that are designed to be ripped out so you can kind of create pretty safe shapes kind of a little foam nest that's customizable for the figures that you're doing when i came to shatterpoint i found that i wasn't as comfortable with pluck foam because of the lightsabers where for for non-lightsaber type figures, the, the pluck foam is great. It's very versatile, but the lightsabers are so, so fragile that it becomes much trickier. I have landed on magnetization, which is very popular. It, it probably takes the most work of any solution out there because you're gluing magnets to the bottom of your minis and you're figuring out a storage solution that can then, you know, they can magnetize too. There are a bunch of different solutions out there for trays and other things, you know, just look on Etsy 
but that's where I've landed because I feel the most comfortable with that with you know you're because the lightsabers and the other bits of your figures are not touching anything they are adhering they are being transported by a magnet on the base that's stuck to something else I have the same sort of thing that Matt has that that magnetized platform for, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word I don't know if it's my long-term solution uh, so I, I've seen a lot of people talk about um, just the, the, the basically the plastic crates and then you lay down metal paper on the bottom and then you put the magnets underneath. It's the same idea. It just gives you a little bit more f- flexibility. These ones have a lot better presence. The ones that we're, that we have and we're talking about, they, they hold all the things in place and there's enough for your, your full strike teams kind of against each other. And there's little cutouts for them. I just don't know, again, going to LVO, I don't think it's a perfect solution because there's no lid on it or anything along those lines. And so it mm-hmm. might be something where I switch over, even if just for those small tournament travel situations, because LVO, most of you, the people that are going are going to be driving. But if I'm flying, like, am I just going to have the thing sitting in my lap? Like I can't yeah. put it in a, in a, in a carry on or anything along those lines. And so e- even as we're going, that's something that we're going to have to readjust and rethink what we want to do. I know Scott has a different solution slightly. He's still magnetized, I believe, though. Well, actually, it's not magnetized, and I'll tell you why, although I may magnetize it in the future. So uh, one thing I will say is I, I think magnetization is a great thing. For my MCP, I did mag- magnetize them. For anyone who knows, basically, you're just gluing a magnet to the bottom. Uh, I would say I ordered magnets, just small little, like, watch battery size magnets that I glued to the bottom with super glue. Kenny? used washers that he would glue to the miniatures it makes them quite heavy and so i don't like the way that it feels when i'm handling the miniature but it's very effective uh, as a magnet there are a couple reasons why i don't magnetize that i learned from from mcp one uh when i would attach the magnets the constant pulling up to overcome the magnetic force eventually a lot of them started ripping off the magnet and some of them, especially if you have a more fiddly model, I'm not really worried about Darth Vader, but some, if you're, depending on how you're grabbing, like, B1 battle droids, any battle droid, considering how they're assembled, and you can't really grab by the base, you're grabbing by the model, and depending on how strong your magnet is, and you want it to be strong, because if you're moving your storage solution, and, and you don't have it perfectly vertical all the time, it's nice that they're not sliding, or if if you dropped it, they're not necessarily going to like all tumble out. You could put it upside down and they'll stay. But that means that they're strong enough that if you are pulling up by the miniature, you do risk breaking the miniature. Breaking the miniature is not a big deal. They're pretty easy to fix. And so that's why I haven't gone for magnetization. So instead what I've done is I've gone through a 3D printing solution. I do have 3D printers. I do use 3D printers, but I actually have ordered my storage solution from Etsy a great store called Treyforge. So if you're interested, check them out. They have a couple of versions. Kenny also uses the storage solution. And essentially it is layers of magnetized filament plastic that holds all of your cards, all of your tokens, all of your cubes, all of your dice, spot for everywhere. And at the bottom, if you want, and you can order specific layers, so you don't have to do the whole thing if you don't want to, they have a miniatures carrying box. So you just... You know, my entire MC, 
or my entire shatter point with the exception of terrain is in basically a one foot by three quarter foot box that I can just walk around with. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really nice solution. If you're interested in that kind of thing, there are lots of people who will do 3D printing for storage solutions on Etsy. Or if you have a 3D printer, there are people who will sell you their STL files. Uh, and if you, it's, it's a good excuse to get into 3D printing as well. There are people who will print custom terrain or pieces for ladders or little bits, custom Shatterpoint figures as well, or custom bases. There's a lot you can do there. So there's lots of options, but magnetization is a good option. And also just custom stuff can be a lot of fun. Mr. Laser, I think is the name of the Etsy store that uh, the tray that JK and I ordered. I've also bought one of these tray forge ones, so I'm not settled by any means. The other thing I'll call out is that the solution for magnetization that I have landed on, which I'm still testing, is to use a combination of green stuff, which is a an epoxy putty that basically has two parts and then you mix it and then after it's been mixed it will set hard and then combine that with super glue and so the basic idea there is get a little bit of the green stuff put it in the center of the bottom of the mini and then push the base down on the magnet so that the magnet is actually flush with the ground or the tabletop rather than a little bit up depending on the size of your magnet and then use super glue a little bit around the edges to secure it to the bottom of the base and then to the magnet. Uh, for, so you, you glue the green stuff to the base around the edge and then the magnet to the green stuff. And I found that to be pretty secure. It doesn't have the same, you know, so far it has not pulled off, but I am, yeah. I am sure that it will be always be a constant conversation. There are a million different ideas and solutions for how to do your storage stuff and with a bunch of different pros and cons. So. That's a great call out and experiment, have fun, get crafty, go to Home Depot yep. or Lowe's. Do you guys works. have a terrain storage solution yet? I don't. I have a box. No. A, I have yeah. a literal yeah. cardboard box that I lug around. <laughs> I use the lid of the Shatterpoint corset right now. Um, and I just sort of tuck everything in there. I know another member in our local scene, Will, has a big plastic tote, and he and he's 3D printed a lot of terrain and stuff, and so he has a particular system to kind of Tetris everything in there for terrain so that it doesn't move around. But really, it's going to depend what storage solution for terrain is going to depend a lot on how much are you transporting, what terrain do you have, what kinds of terrain is already there at your store or where whatever venue you're playing at that's so much harder to speak to in terms of a solution. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's never going to be a really condensed way to store terrain unless you limit it to very specific terrain types. And that will limit the creativity of your terrain building. What I would suggest is know what you're going to build. If you're going to your friendly local game store, take only what you need and know what you're going to put out so that you can transport as little as possible. Yep. Agreed. It is nice that terrain is, I will say, fairly set in terms of what it's going to release. AMG is going to consistently release new terrain little by little. Mini Stravaganza, they show that little garage. So it's there's going to be more stuff over time, but where you're expecting, you know, next year we're expecting 45 new miniatures, give or take, right? Yeah. Like at just kind of a gut check shot. Whereas we'll probably get three new pieces of train. And so you can future proof a little bit with it, but I was more just curious if you guys had thought of anything. I 
and yeah. just going to give Kenny a big box and wish him the best for LVO. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> Great. So let's dive into the next thing. You've got your minis assembled. You've got all your tools. You have got a storage solution, but your minis look boring. So what are you going to do? To paint or not to paint, that is the question. And that is a question that I've often gotten from people as I do commissions for painting. And I have had people message me and say, should I hire you or should I do this myself? And I have a, just a, a, a frankly honest conversation with them. And we all three of us paint to varying degrees of enthusiasm. Kenny also paints uh, with maybe the least enthusiasm. I, it's a, I would call him a begrudging painter of like, well, I guess I have to. I paint out of passion and I really enjoy it. And it's it's a, a thing I'm into. So we kind of, you know, we are all along the spectrum here. And this is an important question because painting is both a big time investment and a big monetary investment, uh, no matter which way you cut it. And it, to me, if done right, can be one of the most satisfying parts of the hobby to the point where if I never played Shatterpoint again, I still would paint the miniatures I have. It would suck not to play with them, but I just enjoy it enough that would be. Whereas I think maybe Matt and JK would say, I'm not going to paint something I'm not going to play. That's asinine. Uh, so, so we kind of have different perspectives here a little bit. So I'll, I'll ask you guys, obviously, since you chose to, to paint rather than commission your miniatures to be painted. So, Matt, why don't we start with you? Why don't you walk me through a little bit your decision of, hey, I want to actually, you know, go and do this myself rather than just pay some other jabroni to do it. So what was what was that thought process like? Yeah, so my, I mean, my journey into painting started with Imperial Assault and essentially I bought this board game and loved it and then discovered the skirmish game that was inside of it and loved that and saw that there were you know, there was this whole world of miniature painting and I was like, oh, wow, this is a thematic game. It would be really cool to have painted miniatures instead of just gray on the table. And I started a little bit digging into that. The problem that I ran into with Imperial Assault and the reason that I, I never really got very far, I played pretty much entirely with unpainted figures for that game, was that I loved the game and the figures so much that I, I ran into this stress point where I was like, oh, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to paint a figure and have it look terrible. And that became a big stumbling block for me to actually want to paint because I, I was not developing skills and I didn't feel like I had much space to do that. When, when IA sort of phased out its competitive lifespan, we started playing Crisis Protocol. I jumped into that quite a bit more casually and I was sort of like, hey, I don't have as much love for the Marvel IP as I do the Star Wars. This is, you know, this was also during COVID. And so it's not like there was an opportunity to play a ton of board games anyway. And I was sort of like, hey, this is an opportunity for me to look at these figures and say, you know what, I'm going to use these as an opportunity to learn. And found that was really successful and developed a love of painting from there just genuinely as its own part of the hobby. And so the first thing I'll call out is you, like, in addition to needing to make the decisions about, are you willing to spend the time and the money on this in order, you know, to get to a place, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. You are going to, if you are just starting out, you're going to have a learning phase and just embrace your learning phase. 
do not get too stressed out about the quality of your first couple of miniatures, especially if you're starting out with Shatterpoint. What I will say is it is very easy to find replacement figures if you really, really have your heart broken and you know you, you could hop on eBay or whatever, even for something in the corset and find somebody that's you know bought a corset, parceled it out, and is then selling the individual contents for like 20 bucks a figure or something. So do not stress out about that too much. I think for me, it's a way to be engaged with the game, even when I don't have opportunities to play it because I'm by myself. It's a way to, you know, hey, I can sit down for 45 minutes in the evening and, and paint and, and find some joy there. Yeah. JK, what about you? I know that we all kind of started with IA a little bit. You know, obviously Matt jumped in more heavily uh, with MCP, but what about you? So, yeah, I, I mean, sim similar story of Matt with MCP, with IA, I, I tried to... I, I like I don't believe that I played the last couple of worlds without painted miniatures. Like I don't think I had anything that wasn't painted on the table. I really focused less on on perfection in IA. I still don't, as we'll get going down the line. I just wanted a cool table presence, things to look at while I was, you know, shuttling around C3PO and my Weequay Raiders and all those. And when MCP came out and I started playing it, I realized that I could have a lot of just fun painting these things. I, I could really work on, on shadow, on highlighting, on these bits and pieces that IA just doesn't really give you because IA figures are tiny, just tiny, tiny, tiny. And so I, I was never good enough during that lifespan to, to create a, any sort of great looking thing. I created table presence and that's really what I was looking for is something that'd be on a table. MCP, every once in a while, I'd find a figure that I really wanted to paint and I would try to put my best foot forward on it. And I think I'll do good things. There's still things that I, I've sort of limited myself as a painter, not like I can't do better, but I have just decided that if eight hours is going to be what I need to create something with perfect eyes, I'm willing to do six hours and have something with eyeballs looking whatever, uh, every other way. And my, my paint has typically been a relaxation sort of thing. I actually do it sometimes during breaks at work. I'll just kind of sit back and take a figure and just sort of brush through and just screw around. But like Matt, you're going to have a whole bunch of crappy figures. Even, even my first Shatterpoint figures from where I started to where I am now, you're getting better just because you're thinking about how they're going to be on the table differently and things along those lines. And that's sort of the, the, the balance that I've walked through. I've actually paused a little bit because I've wanted to rethink what I've been doing on a couple, on a couple figures. So I haven't painted for about a week or two, just partly because of that. I also started on AA Matt actually found a content creator, Sarastro, which I'm sure if you are in the painting world, you know who Sarastro is. He started with IA, but he has moved into a lot of different FFG, AMG games. Pretty prolific creator. I got to meet him once, which was really cool. I have one of his minis. I was a Patreon for him, and uh, I won his... Uh, what was it? What A Dubak Rider. I won a Dubak Rider that he had painted. It's really cool. 
so I was, you know, I was ride or die for that. I followed all the tutorials and I bought all of the paints. I, I was like, I want to do it exactly the way that he has outlined. I'm going to follow his tutorials. So I would, you know, I wasn't being a smart artist and going, hey, I have blue and I have white and this is light blue. So I should mix them together. I went, oh, but, but that's, that's Cantor blue. And this is Lothurn blue. And he says, I need both. And he'd be like, all right, for this one little highlight of this miniature, we're going to do a tiny dab of Lothurn blue. And it's like, great. And he's like, and we're never going to use it again. So it's like, all right, I spent $4 for that. So, so I was super bought in and into it. And because I was in college, I had a stupid amount of disposable income and parents who were really nice to me and didn't make me live outside of home. So I was, I was really, really into it. And for me, I made a rule for myself that I have broken with Shatterpoint just because I have been really busy with other painting projects that I would not play with unpainted miniatures. And so that really motivated me. If I really wanted to play IA or I really wanted to play MCP, I was going to paint the miniatures that I wanted to work on. And, you know, even my output today, I probably average eight miniatures a week. Yeah, my goal has been <laughs> trying to finish about four figures in a month is where I sit. And I've Which been a, a little bit faster than that recently. And to, and to be clear, Scott paints professionally. He did it as his sole source of income for a while. It's He, he is definitely in a different place compared to where JK and I are. Uh, which is great. You have different perspectives on it. Yeah, which, you know, part of that is just that I have continually painted uh, just for a lot longer. You know, we kind of all got started around the same time. But, you know, whereas I think, Matt, you guys probably took a couple years break and you were painting once in a while. I was, it's kind of like every day for eight years um, is kind of what I was doing. But yeah, so so these were some sort of our journeys. And, you know, one thing that I, I'm curious about, because I never considered getting my stuff painted by, by someone else for a commission because I, I really enjoyed doing it. Did you guys ever consider hiring for your, to get your squads done or to get something done like that? I have thought about it, but the, the, the problem is, is there's a balance of it, which is, if I wanted to pay someone to get something done, it would be a figure I really like. It'd be something that I want that is a unique figure that means something to me. Off the top of my head, I can't think of exactly what that is. I'm sure I've had them that I went, oh, this is so cool. I'm sure some people have like, Maul is my favorite figure or Vader is my favorite figure. And those would be the ones that I would want to have someone else paint. The problem is, I want those to be a personal thing for me. And so I would rather take my time to do 8, 12, 14, however many hours trying to improve myself for this specific Holy Grail figure than pay for it. And so that's the balance that I walk more than anything else is I want to pay for ones that I care about, but I want to paint the ones that I care about. Yeah. Yeah, I so I actually did hire you, Scott, to paint a set of terrain mm -hmm. for me for Marvel Crisis Protocol. And my calculation there was very much like, I would like to have painted terrain that I can put on the table. 
but I have a limited, and I, I do enjoy painting, but I have a limited amount of time in which I can paint. And I, I'm always going to want to try to paint people rather than terrain. And so for me, that was a way to, you know, throw money at a time problem and work around that. But I tend to agree with JK that there is a lot of joy that you get from painting your own miniature and then putting it on the table that is just fundamentally different than having a better looking figure that somebody else painted for you. But those there's going to be trade off. There are going to be considerations there for everybody. You know, it just depends on what you care about. Absolutely. I think if it comes down to like, I really want this one unique figure. I get a lot of satisfaction after out of giving that a go. It sounds like you guys do too, and, and that's great. I think it's also a, a different beast with Shatterpoint, MCP, IA, where you know we're getting constant releases. We're getting figures that we are playing around with a lot, and as new stuff we want to paint. I think the, the classic example of a commission is, well, I want a 2,000-point Warhammer army, and I'm going to play that army a lot. And I might switch out a few things, but it's generally speaking, I'm going to get this a lot of work out of this. So hiring that done as kind of like a one and done proposition is a lot more viable than, well, every two months I send this guy the new box of stuff that I want done. You know, I just, I just did a guy's Legion army, like a whole bunch of Legion for a guy. And he's not going to have to get any more of that painted for, for a very long time. And so it's a different proposition depending on the, the game you're in. What I would say is that if you are interested in having a hobby, if you are interested in personal growth and artistic growth and being able to create and do something that you can be proud of, I would strongly consider getting into painting as a hobby. If you could care less about that and you just want stuff that looks cool or you just want stuff with, with paint on them, consider commission, especially if you think of this as like, hey, this is a one-time thing or this is a very sporadic thing because the cost of commissioning sort of counterintuitively is going to be much higher than the cost of, of jumping into painting. And that obviously seems to because it's like, well, hey, you know, a pot of paint, you know, paint's like two to $4. So if I buy 10 of them, well, that's only 40 bucks. It's like, okay, great. Good luck, depending on the range of things you want to paint, getting along with 10 paints. If you don't already have artistic knowledge of how to mix paint and color theory, uh, then you've also got to buy brushes and you've got to buy some of the things. Like if you send your undone sprues to a lot of commission people, they may or may not sell them. I assemble miniatures for people. So you don't have to buy the tools, which can be, you know, 50, 60, hundred dollars. Then you also have the, you know, uh, the time investment, I don't know what your time is worth, but would you like to spend 40 hours painting a squad? Or do you, how much do you make in a work week? How much do you make in a paycheck? And so if that's your time, that's kind of the investment you're making. So obviously those things last over time. So if you're painting miniature after miniature after miniature, then that cost will ease up over time. Because the one-time investment or the one-time big investment and the small recurring investment will eke out to more like a, a more cost-effective thing over time. But as a one-time effective thing, commissioning is just is just cheaper. In terms of commissioning, what like you're gonna expect to pay, the answer is it really depends. It depends on the artist, 
It depends on what you're asking for, the size. You know, IA was 28 millimeters, and so how much that would cost to paint versus Shatterpoint, which is 38 millimeters, to give you an idea of the size difference, I'm curious. I would charge more for a Shatterpoint miniature than I would for an IA miniature. And if you have a beginning artist versus an intermediate artist versus an expert artist that you can find all of them on Fiverr or Etsy or lots of different different places, you're going to pay a, a, a wildly different amount. So if, if you want a professionally painted strike force of eight figures, I would allocate reasonably $250 for that. I think that's that's a reasonable expectation. Uh, that's probably what I would charge for for eight figures. Uh, I charge I generally charge about thirty dollars a figure actually for for uh, yeah thirty dollars a figure for Shatterpoint. So and if you have like big pieces, that can also increase there. So that's just something to think about as you you think about the cost. Um, a couple other things I'll call out quick is that there are a whole bunch of different places that you can land on this too. I know it is very common for folks to say, hey, I'm just going to prime and I'm going to throw a couple of contrast paints on there and, you know, knock out a figure in 30 minutes and be done. I don't really care that it's not going to look as good as, you know, a, a more dedicated painting job, but it's going to look better than gray and, and it, it'll look fine from a tabletop distance. Let's go. Uh, there's a guy in our Slack, Dylan, who has been doing this grayscale thing where he's sort of doing a Zenithal prime and a dry brush so that it's all kind of grayscale, but it's highlighting and darkening the different layers or levels of, of detail on the miniatures. Um, and that certainly looks a lot better than the, the, the plain gray miniatures. And so there's a ton of different options. The one thing you will call out is that if you are planning to travel to conventions to play, it is very common at conventions where there are big events like LVO, Adepticon, uh, Nova, etc. That they will have a what they call the three color rule, where it where they will require you to have all of the figures in your list have at least three different colors of paint on them in order to play them on the table. That's a very common requirement, but it is pretty easy to get there and to fill that if your goal is just I just want to hit the minimum there. However, yeah. if you're just going to play at your local store, maybe a, a store event on a weekend every once in a while. Anybody that's going to give you guff about that instead of just being happy to play games with you, um, tell them to take a hike. Yeah. And I will say also um, is that the three color rule is something from Warhammer, and it is a Games Workshop requirement for any official Games Workshop event is you must have three colors on your miniatures. AMG does not have that requirement for Shatterpoint. So any requirement of a three-color rule is explicitly going to be from a tournament. So check tournament rules. Check those convention rules to see if they have a painting requirement because uh, you don't want to get caught with your pants down, as Matt, Matt said. But yeah, for casual play, it, it, it's all good. One thing that I think for me, I, I go back and forth on this a little bit because there are a couple principles that I use we're talking about painting when I teach people how to paint and when I kind of give advice to people, which is one, look at your, look at your work. And this is true of, of, of painting on a canvas. So look at your work from the distance it will be viewed most naturally and most commonly. So if I pull a miniature up 
and I look at it right up close to my eyes, I can notice every little flaw with it. And the way that the, the highlights and the shadows blend is going to be different when you're viewing that closely where tabletop distance, you're a couple feet away visually. And so that's an, an important rule. In addition, it is done when you say it's done. There is, there is no metric. There is no rule. There is no administrator who is coming to slap you on the wrist if you don't paint it to whatever degree or point of doneness. It is done when you say it's done. And the final philosophy is uh, there are no wrong answers. Just some answers are more right than others. So if, if you like that god-awful color scheme of blue and brown and whatever, and you've decided to paint Anakin's skin yellow and his hair bright pink, and, you know, I might think it looks god-awful, but you're the person who has to live with it. You're the person who has to decide they're happy with it. And if you're happy with it, that's kind of the only thing that matters. I was just going to agree, in, in like, as a... As a... As, uh, again, I am not, I am a, a terrible detailer for painting. Like, I, I, I know I am. I don't know, I have fat fingers or shaky hands or bad something. I don't know, posture. All, all the things, whatever goes into painting, slash, I don't necessarily put myself into the situation to say, oh, well, Maul actually has seven different points on his face that all <laughs> need to be read. And in order to do that, I'm like... I'm going to dry brush red a little bit and see what comes out. And if it looks okay, I'm going to be okay with it. Uh, I look at, I, I'm a very big believer in table presence as a, as a, as the metric. I want to be able to set my thing down. And I look at mama Towson and I go, she has a cool red flowing robe and she has green flames coming out her hands. Yeah. Her eyes aren't exactly what they should be. And if someone is walking up to me and Scott, they're not going to go, Oh, which one is that one? I wonder who painted which one here. Uh, and I'm fine with, I'm, I'm fine with that. And, and it's okay to be fine with that. It's, it's okay. Again, you're done when you say you're done to say, I, I think of my, the B2s that I have, I basically just went silver. I was like, they're going to be silver. Like I, I don't want them to be silver chromium with a, you know, with a glaze down the backside. And I look at Scott's and Scott's has this really nice matte finish that's not too shiny and it looks like it's really metal. And I go, I could do that if I really wanted to put the time in, but I think they look really good with just silver. And it took me like 45 minutes to do it. And I'm just going to go thumbs up, walk away because I'd rather spend my time doing something else. And I'm fine posting stuff in this, in the Slack every once in a while saying, Hey, look what I did. And yeah, if you zoom in stuff on the Slack, you're going to go, yeah, I can see the paint lines there, but that's not, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm more just saying, Hey, look, this cool thing, look, look at this cool figure. I think that is an important philosophy to have that, you know, art is inherently subjective and unlike, you know, a, a fine artist who is trying to make a living selling stuff, you're, you don't have to please anybody other than yourself. But there is part of me, it's, it's my natural instinct I have to suppress sometimes to say, if you are going to do something worth doing, then you should do it. And you should put effort into it to improve and grow and, and do better and, and spend the time. And so I, I kind of have that, that, you know, 
I have to be like, that's for me. If other people don't want to do that, that's okay. Because people will talk about like slap chop, which I think we should highlight is if you are someone who really wants to make it easy, Citadel has released a series of contrast paints. Uh, Army Painter has what they call speed paints. A lot of painting ranges are doing this. Uh, contrast paints are essentially just, honestly, it's just thinned paint. It's a, there's a little bit of an ingredient difference, but it's really just thin paint. It's halfway between a standard paint and a wash, right? Yeah. Or a glaze. Yeah. So essentially the idea is it's, it's, it's based off of this idea of glaze painting, which is really advanced. It's kind of an advanced painting technique where you will do an entire miniature just in glaze, which is literally like dozens and dozens and dozens of layers of different colors on top of different colors. And the idea is you'll do a Xenothal Prime, which for people's reference, the Xenothal Prime is essentially you will prime the miniature in black or dark gray, and then you will do from a 45 degree angle, white or light gray. Uh, you can do it in stages. You can do black, then gray, then white. The idea is simply that the white is meant to mirror where light would fall on the miniature. And so you create natural shadows and highlights. So then when you take your thinned contrast paints, it is going to color the white and shade the, the, the black. So you're kind of going to create, you're, you're cheating a highlight and a shadow with just a base color. Uh, and then there's some dry brushing involved. You can always look up on YouTube, like the slap chop method to create tabletop ready results with very little effort. Not that it doesn't take effort, but not nearly as much. So it's a lower effort. It's a quicker uh, experience that produces above average results for the, for the amount of input you're giving it. So that kind of method to me, I hate it. I hate contrast paints. I don't like them. I like them for some things. And I think that if you are a painter who has developed this, a lot of skills and you know how to use them to create certain effects, they're great. But as a substitute for learning foundational skills and basics, I really don't like them. I, I don't like what they represent as this crutch. Now, if you are someone who's, again, I will never be a, a fantastic painter. I don't care about that. I just want to have the cool thing and paint it so it doesn't look gray. And if that's your thing, which is totally valid, contrast paints are great. They're going to save you so much time and money. It's fantastic. But if you're like, no, I want to build skills and work hard. I think a lot of those like shortcut methods are just underselling. You're just, you're not getting the practice in that you need to, to do that. And that this is the, the inherent tension with painting is quick and easy and to the point, or do I, is it laborious in order to build the skill? Yeah. I'll even call out that with contrast paints, I think that it, it is a mistake to think of those as beginner products. I think that a lot of beginners use them and are able to get models to a, you know, reasonable tabletop standard quickly, but all of the stuff that you see that looks really good with contrast paints are, are painted by people who have a lot of skill and, and a lot of experience working with that specific kind of paint because contrast paint can speed things up if you know what you are doing or if you don't care too much about the details, but it is a trickier kind of product to work with than a standard layer paint in a lot of yeah. ways. And so it's like, yeah. I, I have bought a lot of con contrast paints. I have used a lot of contrast paints. I have moved away from them because I am not good enough to get the results that I would like out of them. And so I only yeah. use them very selectively now. I'm not in a competition with literally anyone. 
I, I go and I put my things down and I've like, I've never once gone, Oh boy, this is going to look ugly. I, okay. I actually have so thought this is going to look ugly, but it's been more like, this is what I'm bringing to the table. If I really wanted to fix it, I would, but I'm not. So I clearly don't want to fix it. Like, and for, and again, some people I am able to 80% it and be fine with it. Scott is not. Scott is a 110% person in a lot of these, these situations. And that's, it's just a different drive. And as you're starting to paint, you're going to learn very quickly if you're a 110% or an 80%. Yeah. When you sit there and go, oh, I just cannot get this, this shadow right on an arm. Hmm. And I go, I'm going to dry brush it again because I like to dry brush things because I think it makes it go so much faster. And you're going... Oh. But if I do this, it's actually going to bring out the highlights in his eyes and change the way. And I just don't care. Yeah. I'm just going to dry brush. Yeah. Yeah. What I think too helps a lot. And this is another great reason to join the Slack is to have conversations with other people that are painting. Uh, partially is just, you know, to use the power of social media for good and not evil there. It is great <laughs> to post your completed pictures of, of figures into the channel and then get positive comments on them and talk about them and that that's a really strong motivation and reward to keep going and keep trying and keep learning. But also you can like, we have a painting channel and it is very common. People will post like a work in project photo. I did this the other day where I was like, Hey, this is where my Padme is. And I feel like I haven't quite figured out what this is. Can I get another pair of eyes on this to give me a recommendation of where to go? And those kinds of things where you can get somebody else's perspective are really, really helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I have found is that one, I am hypercritical, and two, I am hyper competitive, and I don't <laughs> let any of that out in the Slack. So there's a new guy who joined the Slack, Eric B. I don't remember. I think it's. I'm not gonna name it, but uh, uh, he he posted some miniature pictures, and I was like, I must I must beat you because uh, his miniatures were, looked so good, and so I kind of got like this competitive spirit. So Eric, if you're listening, I'm I'm silently competing with you when I'm painting. I'm just like, all right, I got to beat this guy. Um, there, and, there are some phenomenal painters in on the Slack as a whole. If, if yeah, and, you can you can level up really quick just by looking and going, hey, what did you do with this? They will yeah. 100 and 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 from everything I've seen, everyone will 100 percent try and help you. I will give you wrong information, but I would try to help you. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about painting tools and I want to talk about brushes. Kind of first, I want to touch on what kind of brushes should you buy if you're starting, or even if you want to up level your game. So there's sort of two considerations that you should think about. One is synthetic versus natural, and the other is cheap versus expensive. And those kind of go hand in hand. So a synthetic brush has a little bit of a different feel to it, different look to it. Obviously, it is a th synthetic fiber, it is not a natural fiber. Uh, some considerations with this, synthetic brushes are cheaper. They hold their edge a little bit easier in certain cases. And, you know, they, they can just be a nice thing, especially for certain dry brushing techniques, because dry brushing can be really brutal on your paint, uh, on your paint brushes. And, and synthetic brushes, if you, especially if you're doing certain details or a miniature you don't care about as much, can be a good way to just get some paint on plastic and not spend a ton of money. I bought a set of seven brushes, uh, synthetic two dry brushes and five uh, normal brushes from size zero to four for $18. So super cost effective, uh, cheap way to do it. If you are starting out, 
there is nothing wrong with buying cheap synthetic brushes because you will not know how to take care of your brushes. You will not know how to properly use them. And so if you destroy them, which you will, and you will split the ends and you will leave them in the paint water uh, when you shouldn't, and they will bend at the bottom because they are up against the cup. This is a low investment way of being like, well, all right, I'll just buy new ones, right? It's not a big deal. Uh, so that that's a great consideration there. Then we have expensive brushes, which have these little sealed cases. Uh, I paid for a set of six brushes that I use uh, that are Winsor & Newton Kalinsky Sable brushes. Uh, for any reference, a Kalinsky Sable is a weasel. It's not actually a sable. Uh, it only lives in Siberia. And they are expensive because they are uh, nearing endangerment and it is expensive to harvest and get the bristles on their fur because they don't like captivity very much and they don't do great in captivity. So that is probably the nicest, most expensive brush. They're artist brushes. Uh, they're great for watercolor. They're great for oil painting and acrylic sometimes. And they are the best brushes for mini painting with natural fibers. Natural fibers flow better. They hold paint better. Um, they are great for details. They will keep their tip for a long time if you take care of them and you understand what you're doing and how to use them properly and what a brush should be used for. So if you are a beginner looking to become intermediate or an intermediate looking to become an expert, uh, Kalinsky Sable Brushes can be a good way to really sort of slow down, take your time, and, and, and use a really good tool. Painting is hard, and you don't necessarily want to make it harder on yourself. But again, the difference is $18 versus, I don't know if I I paid $140 for six brushes. So, you know, it's, it, it can be an expensive investment. And if you don't know what you're doing, you ruin them. It could be a, a, a really a, a dent in your pocket, but JK, how do you guys, what, what do you use for brushes and, and how have you navigated that? Yeah, for my first year-ish where I was really diving into painting with Marvel Crisis Protocol, I bought a cheap set of synthetic brushes for like 15 bucks and it had like 12 different brush sizes in it and that was really really fantastic in the last six months or so i have pivoted over to some natural brushes um i i believe they're the windsor and newton ones so they're they run about 20 dollars per brush the the thing that i will call out in addition i agree with everything you just said scott one big difference between synthetic versus natural is that synthetic brushes are going to be consistently fine. A natural brush, you know, that's coming from a, you know, where, the, where the brush hairs are coming from any kind of a natural source, there is going to be biological variation. And so you can buy five different of the exact same brush size from the same manufacturer. And those brushes are all going to perform a little bit differently. However, most of us, and I include myself in this, I do not know enough about to, I don't know enough about painting to be able to tell the difference. One of the things that I have noticed is that there is a temptation when you're new to want to use a whole bunch of different size of brushes for different jobs. And I've recently realized that one of the things about the size zero and size one brushes is they often just hold a better, sharper point for longer with a, because they store the paint in the belly of the brush and you can actually do just as good or better detail work with those size brushes as you can with the really small ones. And so yeah. I would do 90% of my painting now with a size one and size zero brushes. Um, and maybe more than that. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it It is more about the fineness of the tip than the size of the brush. That's very much where I've gotten to recently is, yeah, using the zero, the, using the one. I occasionally, if I'm using a, if I'm painting a big figure, I'm looking for my Dormammu who's around, who's somewhere around here. I'll use like a huge, a huge paint brush to cover a lot of area because it's smart to do. Like yeah. th this is a, an MCP Hulk. So it's got a lot bigger size in general, but like, obviously I didn't do all of the detailing and whatnot from uh, the, from the bigger brush, but basically I just slopped the dark green down everywhere, the purple down everywhere, and then worked my way back up on it. I actually really yeah. still like the way my Hulk turned out. Uh, it's not perfect, but I think it looks good. But yeah, that I, at some point bought a bunch of triple zeros and double zeros. And I realized that I just don't use them that much because it's just hard to get, it's hard to get enough paint to make it matter. And it's hard to get not enough paint to make it detailed. And I know yeah. that's a weird balance between the two, but it was just, it, it is just a lot easier to get a, a zero or a one, have the tip good and, and kind of press into it. I still only use synthetics because again, I'm not, I'm not focused enough. That being said, I actually put a bunch of natural ones on my Christmas wish list to start working a little bit more onto it. Just partially because I don't know what else to get for Christmas half the time. Uh, and, and I thought it would be a good, a good little present for me from someone else. Never. If you're just starting out, buy the cheapest thing you can find and just try it and see if you like painting. If you don't like painting, then you have not lost a lot of money. If you do, yeah. there are 10,000 different gadgets and upgrades and things that you will then suddenly explore and want to have and make great things to put on birthday and Christmas wish lists or, you know, put, put away somewhere for you to buy at some point. You will never run out of opportunities to, to upgrade later if you want. What is this responsible? No, it's the thing to put credit card debt into. You buy them all immediately. <laughs> That, that's a great that's a great transition point there, Matt. Because I, I want to just call out everyone very quickly. Kind of call out some good tools that that kind of helped your painting a little bit. I I will go go here first. I'm going to call out um, some just two items that I think are are important. One I think being very important, and the other one being situationally important. Uh, the first one I'll call out is a painting handle. Uh, painting handles come in multiple sizes for anywhere from 28 to 38 millimeters to like 40, 50 millimeters and above. Uh, these are really, really essential. There's a lot of different ones. Honestly, if you get a cap of like a hairspray can and some putty, that is also fine. When I started out, I just grabbed the miniature by the base or I held the miniature. And I cannot tell you how many times because I am an impatient person and I live in Utah, and so paint dries quickly, and so I have unrealistic expectations, I would grab onto a piece of the miniature I'd already painted, I would then take it off to another piece, and notice there was a fingerprint in my miniature now. And so getting <laughs> painting handles, so you don't have to hold onto your damn miniature while painting, <laughs> super e is super beneficial. So, so definitely pick one of these up um, at, any, at the beginning of your, of your painting journey. Absolutely. The second thing I will call out is, is way more situational, and that is a hobby drill. You, you, you cannot use a regular drill because these are super fine and make super small holes. So this is just like a little hand cranked one. Citadel makes this one, but you can get lots of different versions. Uh, the thing about having a hobby drill is 
when a very fiddly part of a miniature breaks because your cat knocked it off a shelf or your child decided that they just didn't like that figure. If they break at a point that they are not designed to break at, which would be an assembly point, if, if the leg comes off where the leg is supposed to be attached, it's pretty easy to re-glue that. If it breaks at a point that it wasn't meant to break at, where maybe some weight distribution is really difficult, it can be a nightmare. I broke Shuri, which is a very fiddly middle, uh, very fiddly miniature that has a very small connection point at the bottom where all of her weight lists. And so plastic glue alone did not deal with it. Green stuff is an option or certain putties. I don't actually like those because they take too long to harden and you're having to kind of sculpt around it. So what you can do is you can take a drill and drill into a piece you know, because these get very small, so you can do this on a 28 or 32 millimeter miniature. Take a piece of paper clip, snip it in half, and essentially create like a little connection point with some super glue and glue the pieces together with, it's sort of like putting a metal rod in someone's like leg. And so this has saved my butt so many times with repairs. Uh, also, if you're interested in doing custom work with a miniature, like changing things around, these are really useful. So. Those are the tools I'll call out. JK, what tools do you like? What, what tools helped you out? I, I definitely use, I, I have a little handle. I actually just use a single handle with, with putty on it that um, the base can expand on it fairly well. Uh, so that's that's been a huge thing. Uh, I'm going to call out something a little differently, and that is a simple water dropper. You will originally not realize how much water you need when you start painting because you don't realize you need painting. So if it's your first time, understand that if you put in two drops of paint, you probably want a drop of water or two drops of water or three, depending on how thick you want it. Learning to mix paint with water and getting it the right, the right viscosity. I'm using that term. Yeah, it's accurate. Is, is, so, is so important and having just like a stupid 16 cent little water dropper that you get, I actually think Kenny gave me this, um, is going to, is going to make your life so much easier as opposed to like walking over and trying to do it under a faucet. I know some people have, will do that. Uh, the other thing is get yourself a, some sort of palette that you like. I, I think Matt might be talking about a dry brush palette that he uses, but get something that you like and probably a dry brush or, I mean, a. uh, wet palette, sorry, not a dry brush palette, a, a wet palette that will hold color. We, I won't go in deep into detail about that. You can look them up, but something to get your paint on and something to get your paint wet. Um, yeah. wet. Uh, if you live in an arid place or even just any place where paint dries quickly when you have just like a little bit, a wet palette will preserve your color for the entire painting session. When you want to mix a gradient, when you want to go back to colors, a wet palette is is one of the best tools for painting, period. Uh, I would recommend at the very beginning to, to get a wet palette and start using it. Could not recommend it highly enough. Yeah, they're relatively inexpensive. The other thing, too, is if you are like me and you're not painting, usually painting figures in a single session, having a wet palette that will keep those paints out and available and not dry for you for like can two help. days for like two days it's why and that's in utah where we have zero humidity if you're in a more humid area yeah. it'll keep if you don't longer. have a wet palette if you just put your paint out it would dry in like 60 to 90 seconds yeah exactly yeah like, so the big things 100 percent, i agree with everything you guys have called out um 
use all of those things myself. The things that I'm going to call out are the first one is magnification. There are a bunch of different options that you can pursue here. Most people, I think it makes sense to have some kind of a desktop, you know, lens that you can then, you know, often will double serve as a light. Um, I don't have a dedicated painting space. And so everything I, I use needs to be, I can need to pack it up. So I have a set of like $30 battery powered glasses that have a light on them. And then there is a magnification lens with a couple of different options. And it looks absolutely ridiculous on my face because I wear it on my face over the top of my regular glasses. And I feel like I'm 90 years old. However, it is very difficult to paint detail, especially small detail when you cannot see it. And one of the things that I found is especially if I, if I was going to be painting for more than like 30 minutes, if I'm doing any detail work, there's a tendency where you sort of hunch over and you bring things close to your eye and you try to see what's going on and it hurts your back. It, it, it's just bad news. So I super recommend some kind of magnification. Scott called this out earlier. You do have to be careful because if you only are looking at your mini magnification, you can miss what it actually looks like at a tabletop distance. And just because it looks good up close does not mean it will look good from far away. So you have to keep that in mind, but it is so much easier to paint details when you can see them. The other thing I'll call out is a dry brush palette. The one that I have is from Artist Opus and they're pretty inexpensive, but you can find alternatives out there. I know people also will just take a piece of cardboard and, you know, glue some sprue or other terrain to it. This is basically just a piece of particle board that has texture on it. You prime it. And then you, you sit it down. The primary use for it is if you're going to dry brush, what you can do is sort of test the surface and work out the paint in your brush and get an exact feel for how the brush or how the paint is coming off the brush before you apply it to your model. But I use it pretty much every single time to wipe off a little bit of excess paint from my brush or to just test out exactly how much paint is there. One of the things that you will hear everyone say and talk about is that you need to thin your paints. You need to thin your paints more than you think you do. And really having the opportunity to have a surface that you can test on to feel how the paint is coming off the brush before you touch it to your model and make a big splotch that you then have to fix is huge. Now, a good rule of thumb that I have found is that if when you are mixing your paints, if you do a test strip, so I'll just test it on my my wet palette. You want it to be not translucent. A good way to understand if your paint is too wet is if there are bubbles in it. If there are bubbles in your paint, it is too wet. And you should uh, either let it dry out uh, for a little bit, or you should add more paint in to reconstitute and, and, and spread out some of that moisture. If you are looking to, to get into the painting hobby or upload your skills, one of the most important things that this is, this is the advice I give people all the time is when you are starting out, the most important skill to develop is dexterity, how to handle a brush, how to use a brush, how to thin your paint, just the, the logistical fundamentals of if you're holding your brush like this, you're having a problem. If you're holding your brush like this, you're doing some detail work. This is, you know, just like that kind of stuff can be really helpful. A lot of people are concerned about things before they should be. Get that down first, then start thinking about things like color theory, highlighting, shading. You know, you can start that stuff while you're on the dexterity, but just make sure that you're walking before you're running. I will also say that a big part of 
how long a lot of people say like, I don't want to spend the time or like, you know, it takes me so long to do this. The more you paint, the quicker you will be. You go slow so you can go fast. There are times that a miniature that I might've spent four to six hours on to get a quality level. I now can paint to a better quality level in two hours and you will just improve with time. So, so don't worry so much about that. It will, it will just come with, with your skills. And maybe the most important thing that I want to call out, and that'll lead us into talking about some really great content creators that we want to highlight is at a certain point, painting miniatures is not enough to get better. Just if you only paint miniatures, you will not get better. Seeking out classes, seeking out YouTube videos, studying. I have gotten better as a painter instantaneously just by thinking differently, just by understanding a concept. I, I could just immediately put into practice because you have those dexterity, you, you have that dexterity, you have those skills to implement what you're seeing. But, you know, watching YouTube or, or doing Patreon or Skillshare, that can be all the difference. And so, so I'd like to call out some, some of our, our favorite content creators as our last bit here. Uh, for me, uh, Squidmar Miniatures on YouTube. Uh, it's a couple of dudes in Sweden who do some really, really cool, interesting dioramas and painting work. And they have some master classes and they talk about color theory and they talk about light and how to paint miniatures in an intelligent way. Uh, so that they're a really great resource. I will also point out uh, Vince Venturella, who is a golden demon, if you're familiar with that, and Crystal Brush winner, who has a YouTube channel, who is probably, he, he has a full-time job and a wife and children and paints 60 hours a week. Uh, he is a monster. He is a beast. Uh, and finally, my personal favorite painter who is a, in, on Instagram and YouTube, is named Sergio Calvo. He's based out of Spain. Crystal Brush winner, uh, Golden Demon winner, probably one of the best painters in the entire world. Um, he does, he has a Patreon and he does uh, classes. I actually was doing a class at LVO that I wish I could do, but it was sold out and it's a thousand dollars. So um, I, I really love using them. That's a lot of high level stuff though. So Matt, do you want to talk about any content creators that have really helped you? The one that I want to call out immediately for Shatterpoint uh, is the painting coach on YouTube. I have not watched a ton of his stuff but he's done a handful of videos uh, about Shatterpoint figures specifically. And I think he hits a really, really great spot for beginner painters because he is providing paints. You know, he's telling you exactly which paints to use. They're all Citadel paints. And so they're easy to find. And something about the way that he talked about layering, about how much paint needs to be on your brush, particularly in his Anakin painting video, really just clicked for me as a, to understand a little bit better how to, how to think about applying layers. I think he splits a really good middle ground between developing skills to get better at painting while not painting things to such an incredibly high level that it's just going to be out of reach for somebody like me who is a pretty casual hobbyist. I really like Ninjon also on YouTube primarily for his discussion about like tools and accessories and techniques. I think he does a really good job of laying those out and talking, you know, kind of cutting through like what actually works, what's good versus what's not. I, I also want to call out Sarastro who does some really, really incredible work, but with a caveat, which is Sarastro is really great. And if you go all the way back to his Imperial Assault videos, he's starting from a really great place of simple beginner, 
really, really approachable. As he has developed further into Crisis Protocol and Shatterpoint, he is painting at quite a high level, and his videos and tutorials there are really kind of intermediate to advanced, kind of showing off the techniques that he is using that are certainly like outside the scope of what I'm capable of doing. And so if you sit down and try from the beginning, try to use his Ahsoka video as a tutorial, that may present some challenges for you. If you want to go with Sorastro, you may need to do a little bit more, you know, blending of looking at some of his older beginner stuff and then thinking about how you can translate that into a Shadowpoint figure, which is a useful skill, but can be intimidating if you're just starting out. I do like to look at Sorastro, even though he's beyond my skill level often, it, for his he has a, a cool way of looking at like color theory and a lot of things of why you base level a certain thing, a certain color. He did a thing on uh, Malaketh for MCP and he talks about how he undercoats everything purple, even though there's no purple showing, but he kind of goes through why you have the purple and, and, and going into those, those next levels that I've always thought was interesting. I, I, I don't have, I don't necessarily follow any, I watch some occasionally, I actually would recommend AMG will often have their painters. I don't know their names. Um, their art Kemp. director. Okay. Yeah, Dallas he, Kemp. He he's really good, and he, they'll they'll do painting tutorials, and they're not they're not specific about learning, but because they are about specific figures, I think it gives you a good opportunity to see what you want to do with a figure because uh, a lot of times painting comes down to being able to see the end knowing like what the end is supposed to be and working your way backwards from that that is it's a it's a skill that you it's hard to get to but they do it really well of they of as they walking through they go i want to make this I want to make this this color. I'm going to start here. I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm laying down all of my base and I'm going to move on because we're going to lighten all of this stuff. And yeah. you can see thought processes on specific figures because that's really what we're doing is just specific figures over and over. Absolutely. And one thing I will call out about that, especially that's where I learned how to paint. You know, I, I, all the trusted videos, I followed them. When I brought up like learning dexterity, that gets a lot easier when you have someone telling you exactly what color to paint what and what to buy. And so you're not having to worry about color theory and color choice and scheme for your miniatures. You're having somebody else do that. And you can focus just on building up certain skills, like where to place your highlights and your shades and how to handle a brush. And so that is where that can be really beneficial for people. If you are feeling intimidated about making those selections and those thoughts. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this little bit longer episode that we all thought was going to be about 40 minutes shorter, but we really appreciate you sticking around with us. Hopefully this has been really helpful for you and will can continue to, to help people maybe get inspired into painting or decide, you know, whether or not it's for them and, and get some cool, cool tools that, that you can all use. Uh, if you're interested, I'm going to do a shameless plug and say you can check out my Instagram, which is Tiger Stripe Painting, Tiger Stripe Painting Studio. Thank you so much. Join our Slack. Rate and review the podcast. We love you. Good night. <laughs>